transmission in the clinic setting among the staff of that clinics. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Live across Hong Kong, this is Radio 3. Good morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong on the final day of the week, Friday the 14th of January 2022. This is Peter Lewis with the day's business headlines. Wholesale prices in the US increased at a record pace in 2021, adding further pressure to the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates. The producer price index, which tracks prices that businesses receive for their goods and services, was up 9.7% year-on-year in December, from a revised 9.8% jump in November, the largest such increase since the government began measuring the data in 2010. Cinder Asset Management has unexpectedly withdrawn from the recapitalization of Chongqing Ant, the consumer finance arm of Ant Group, just three weeks after announcing it. Cinder said its board had decided not to participate in the plan to buy 6 billion yuan for an additional 20% stake in Chongqing Ant, which would have taken its holding to 35%. Cinder didn't provide any explanation as to why it had pulled out of the deal. China Evergrande has avoided its first default on an onshore bond after investors agreed to delay early repayment of a 4.5 billion yuan note. Evergrande unit's Henga Real Estate Group said in a stock exchange filing that bondholders of more than half of the principal agreed to the proposed six-month payment extension on its 6.98% January 2023 notes. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Jack Stewart, Credit Suisse, and Nick Marrow from the Economist Intelligence Unit. And with a view from India is Toby Lawson of Society General India. And you can join in by texting 6393-5925, emailing moneytalk at rthk.hk, posting on our Facebook page, Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3, or sending us a tweet at Money Talk Radio 3. Money Talk! On Wall Street overnight, technology shares resumed their decline as investors digested worse-than-expected inflation data. The Nasdaq Composite Index snapped a three-day winning streak, slumping 2.5% to 14,807, having been up half a percent earlier in the day. The S&P 500 slid 1.4% to 4,659. And the Dow gave up gains of more than 200 points to close 177 points lower at 36,113. Big tech stocks led the declines with Microsoft down 4.2% and Amazon off 2.4%. Shares of Tesla tumbled almost 7% and Snap plunged over 10%. The Pan-European Stock 600 Index ended the day almost unchanged. London's FTSE 100 rose 0.2%. Hong Kong stocks rose slightly on Thursday. The Hang Seng Index added 28 points, or 0.1%, to 24,430 by the end of the day. The Hang Seng Tech Index slipped 1.7% following its 5% surge on Wednesday. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite dropped 1.2% to 3,555. And the CSI 300 slid 1.6% to a five-month low. 
And there were more woes for struggling mainland property developers as they struggled to raise liquidity. Yusho Group slumped almost 7% as it sought to delay paying $2 bonds by a year in the debt exchange plan and asked bondholders for their consent to waive certain default clauses in 12 other bonds. Country Garden tumbled 7.8%, the most in nearly four months, after it emerged that the real estate firm failed to generate sufficient investor demand for a potential 300 million US dollar convertible bond. Its dollar bond, due 2031, dropped 2.7 cents on the dollar to 72 on track for a record low. Meanwhile, property developer Sunak China said it plans to raise 4.52 billion Hong Kong dollars by selling 452 million new shares to controlling shareholder Sunak International Investment Holdings at $10 each. That's a 15.3% discount to the previous close. Sunak plummeted almost 23% in Hong Kong after the placing announcement, a record intraday drop. And shares of troubled cruise operator Genting Hong Kong crashed by a record 56% after shares resumed trading in Hong Kong, as the company said it was unable to guarantee that it could meet its financial obligations. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil fell three quarters of a percent to $84.09 a barrel. Gold is unchanged at $1,822 an ounce. Treasury yields were all lower today. The US 10-year Treasury bond yield fell five basis points to 1.7%. And the US dollar index slipped 0.1% to its lowest level since early November. And the euro this morning is trading at $1.14.5. The bucks at 114.2 Japanese yen. One British pound buys $1.37. And 10 Hong Kong dollars and 68 cents. Chinese yuan is trading at 6.36 and a half versus the dollar in offshore markets. And the weakness on Wall Street is following through here in Asia. In Australia, the SX200 down about two-thirds of 1%. Stocks in Japan have just opened with the Nikkei 225 down 1.2%. The Cosby is also off over 1%. And looks like the Hang Seng is going to fall about 180 to 200 points at the open this morning. It's 8.09. Let's welcome our guests over in our Queensway studio. We have Nick Marrow, lead for global trade at the Economist Intelligence Unit. Morning to you, Nick. Good morning. And also with us on the phone is Jack Su, Chief Investment Officer for Greater China at Credit Suisse. Morning to you, Jack. Good morning. Uh, let's start off by looking at uh, these, this latest U.S. inflation data. Wholesale prices in the U.S. increased at a record pace in 2021 adding further pressure to the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates. The producer price index, which tracks prices that businesses receive for their goods and services, was up 9.7% year-on-year in December from a revised 9.8% jump in November. That's the largest increase since the government began measuring the data in 2010. Um, Nick, all the inflation data we've had uh, this week from the US suggests that inflation's turning into quite a big problem for the Fed. What, what's driving it higher, do you think? Yeah, right. Well, we, if we look at the data print, um, we notice that a lot of this is coming from fuel prices, gasoline prices, but also things like used cars and trucks. 
Um, and so when we think about how the Fed might be able to respond to these price pressures, it gets a little bit complicated. Um, I mean, the kind of uh, knee-jerk reaction is to talk about interest rate hikes, and I think the market is now expecting the first hike to occur in March. But that you know addresses the demand side problem. What about the supply side problem, which is really what's plagued us this entire you know past couple of years, year and a half really. Um, and the reason why I mentioned uh, I mentioned this is because when we look at the used car and truck component, a lot of this is driving from the chip shortage, um, mm-hmm. and these are factors that you know a, a Fed interest rate hike isn't necessarily going to be able to directly address. Are you seeing any sign that these supply shortages and disruptions to supply chains are easing? Not really. So we've actually been out of consensus for quite some time. Um, I know late last year there was a lot of talk in the market about how supply shortages were easing, but we never really saw that. Um, and I think the, the events that we've seen in the past couple of weeks kind of illustrate um, that there's still going to be a lot of pressure heading throughout the rest of this year. A lot of this isn't just tied to the chip shortage um, based on uh, you know how long it takes a foundry to get up and running. We're not expecting the chip situation to really alleviate by the end of this year. Um, at you know at, at the most optimistic time frame is a high risk that this this chip issue could you know bleed into 2023, but even beyond that, um, we th- see things like China's commitment to zero COVID, um, disrupting port and logistics operations, and that's going to be something that also is going to be a constant theme that reverberates throughout 2022. And so a, a lot of these disruptions that we're seeing um, in in this space don't look like they're going to be receding in a meaningful sense anytime soon. Jack, what's your explanation for why inflation is ripping higher in the U.S.? I mean, um, the data already confirmed, and Nick has already kind of explained uh, what the drivers are. I mean, to us, um, the supply chain issue is clearly the most important issue right now. And with the Omicron situation still unfolding across the world, and uh, some government already expecting European uh, countries to have half its population to be infected in the next few months, Mm-hmm. You know, we are going to be going into the supply chain issue in the first half of this year. But we have a slightly more optimistic view than Nick. Uh, we do anticipate that the supply chain issue will start, I guess, to uh, I guess, become healthier by the second half of the year as the Omicron situation fades. Uh, inflation data would likely be fading slightly uh, from March onwards because of high base effects and a gradual uh, recovery of the supply chain. And um, so I think that um, this inflation problem uh, will be gradually fading throughout into the year end. And we think the CPI in the United States uh, will fall from currently 7% uh, to 4.5% by year end. Despite that, though, um, monetary policy is still exceedingly loose, isn't it? Even if the Fed raises interest rates by three or four times this year, it's only going to take them to 1%. Isn't that still way too low? Uh, well, in our view, right, um, they will continue to hike rates in 2023. Um, mm-hmm. So they will first hike rates four times this year, and then they will hike rates again by four times next year. So this pace of hiking about once a quarter uh, for the next two years, you know, will provide some pressure to consumers uh, because that will obviously add to cost of mortgages and that will add to the pressure of consumers. So I guess central banks have to balance out uh, how quickly they hike versus the inflation problem that we are facing, which is more of a supply side problem rather than demand side problem. Um, so I think this is the appropriate measure to uh, implement from the central banks. Nick, why, why is um, in inflation in China, um, it seems much more contained there, doesn't it, than what we're seeing in the US? Is that a little bit surprising, particularly given 
that China is following this zero COVID policy at the moment, which is resulting in draconian lockdowns across the country, which is going to have quite a big effect on uh, not just the economy, but as you said earlier, on supply chains as well, with ports being disrupted, uh, all sorts of logistics problems. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the surprising thing, I guess, is that, you know, when you look at global headlines, inflation is what dominates. Um, But that really hasn't been the case in China over the past year, year plus. And that is because precisely of what you just mentioned in terms of those zeroed COVID policies, which inevitably suppress economic activity, specifically Mm -hmm. household spending and private consumption. Um, These are things that um, have kind of been uh, perennial issues for China uh, since the pandemic began private consumption has trended below pre-pandemic levels for quite some time and officials have really struggled to try and revive it in any meaningful way and each time it looks like private consumption will rebound a COVID outbreak happens um, and we start start to see cities or neighborhoods go into lockdown Um, I think this is something that we're going to continue to see divergence in we are starting to see very high producer price inflation in China, which which is very much tied to the global story. We're starting to see PPI seep into the domestic CPI. Um, and so we could see uh, price pressures start to gather this year, especially if, as we expect, private consumption should rebound. But that also assumes that the current you know, outbreaks in China are going to become controllable. We're not going to see a massive repeat of the lockdowns that we saw at least in 2020. But then again, that that also the question is up in the air because of how China is responding to Omicron, uh, as well as its very, very um, stringent attachment to zero COVID, especially this year, which is incredibly politically sensitive around the Olympics, as well as the party Congress in the fall. Jack, we're seeing a number of analysts now start to revise down their forecasts for economic growth in China this year. And we've got, of course, GDP data from the mainland coming on Monday. Um, Are you what's your anticipation of what uh, is happening in China and in particular how all these lockdowns, the zero covid policy is going to affect the economy? We are not so pessimistic. I mean, number one, in the short term, uh, people complain a lot about the um, zero COVID policy. The fact is, um, we are doing the right thing for the population, right? You know, the efficacy rate is indeed slightly lower uh, compared to the global averages. Um, the defense against the virus will have to be accompanied by a zero COVID policy. Um, so that is slightly the better outcome um, than using, I guess, what other countries are using in terms of just living with COVID. Secondly, uh, if I think about how it managed to defend against Delta and all the other variants in the previous episodes, China took a month each time they used the civil code policy. Yes, there is disruption uh, and there's a severe disruption in the short term. And the reality is the country will benefit more after a month of implementing such a policy. So economy, uh, at least from a COVID-related impact perspective, could be recovering much faster uh, than the disruption that we would likely see in Europe and US uh, due to Omicron right now. And, and so I think this is the right um, policy to implement. And secondly, on the um, longer run, you know, we actually face much more of an issue in the housing market right now. You know, the default situation is what some of, and why some of the analysts are downgrading GDP to, I guess some have gone, gone as low as 3%. Uh, and we saw some U.S. banks downgrading to 4.3% only a couple of days ago. Um, the fact is, this is a reflection of the shutdown that's happening in some of the provinces in the first quarter. Uh, the outlook, you know, you have to make the assumption that by March, during the two session, there will be some policy adjustments 
that will be supportive of the economy. And there will be some policy rollouts, such as fiscal easing, that will be supportive of the economy to lift things uh, from currently, I guess, deceleration um, of growth in the first quarter. So if you don't put that assumption in, uh, clearly, yes, you will get this uh, poor growth trajectory. But assuming that authorities will not implement anything, or insufficient, I think this is a very aggressive assumption. So we don't agree. Uh, we think the economy uh, will come out about 5.9% above the consensus uh, by year end. Mm-hmm. But we'll have to see what happens in March. Okay, that's a, a very optimistic forecast, probably one of the most optimistic I've heard on uh, for China this year. Nick, what, what do you think? We had uh, the World Bank president, David Malpass. He was quite downbeat on the global economy this week. He said it faces a grim outlook as the outshocks, aftershocks of the pandemic way on growth. What are your thoughts about uh, what the World Bank is saying? Right, yeah. Well, I think that generally speaking, we're more pessimistic than the World Bank, but we're actually a bit more optimistic than some of the other kind of, you know, the corporate banks. Um, so to provide a little bit of benchmarking. Um, so Jack said that, you know, they're looking at 5.9. Our, our growth assumptions for China this year um, are 53 um, so higher than, I think it was Goldman that made the cut down to 4.3. Mm-hmm. Um, for the U.S., we're expecting growth of 3.8, and then for the global economy, I think it's around 4.4. So that's actually generally in line with what the World Bank is saying. Um, I think um, we are relatively optimistic as well, just like Jack was saying, in terms of the fact that policy uh, support is going to be forthcoming in China, which I think is going to be a big part of that global growth story. Um, and I think I, I agree with Jack. Like, you need to assume that you know, the government isn't going to sit by and, and let things happen without having any type of response. What we're a bit more worried about is that um, as as much as the government introduces these measures to cushion the economy, is there actually policy transmission that's happening effectively. So Mm -hmm. the credit numbers that we saw come out just this past week indicate that although China has maintained a relatively accommodative stance, the demand side, the demand for credit actually hasn't been that robust. Um, And that's worrisome. Um, It it indicates that there are things like um, issues around, you know, investor confidence, consumer confidence, market fragility that, again, policymakers might not have a lot of control over in terms of influencing. Um, and a lot of this, this, the strategy that we've seen over, again, the, for, really for China for the last 10 years, you talk about reviving consumption. This has never really left the policy agenda. But the measures that officials are doing to try and do that are, again, really much more on the supply side, um, not so much on the demand side. We're not seeing, say, transfers to households um, in ways that can you know, meaningfully boost incomes to increase their private spending. Um, these are issues that are going to weigh on China as well as the global economy um, for much of this year. Um, and yeah. I think uh, with what we're seeing with you know, pandemic resurgence and supply chain issues, it's just going to make the environment very, very complicated. Uh, I think just to add on Nick's point about demand side of credit, uh, I think the nail, he hit the nail on the head. It's basically, if you're not borrowing to buy houses, uh, which is a large part of credit demand in China, mm-hmm. um, then that demand side story is never going to recover. And so with the default situation that's still unfolding uh, this month and this quarter, uh, as Peter mentioned in his uh, news wrap-up on the various public companies seeking to get uh, debt exchanges, uh, consumers' confidence over buying a house right now remains weak. Until then, um, this recovery is not coming through yet. And, and what, what do you think the impact is going to be on the markets? Um, mainland China shares um, have had rather a poor start to the year, um, haven't they? We've seen the CSI uh, 300 now down on the, uh, on the year, the Shanghai Composite as well uh, down on the year. Although here in Hong Kong, we have seen a rally in the tech sector in the last week. What are your thoughts? 
Well, number one, uh, we think this is the 11th debt cap bounce that we've seen in the China <laughs> equity markets. Uh, since 18th of February, we had about 10 bounces in mm. the market, averaging 6 to 15%, and every time uh, it kind of fell um, after two average of two weeks. And it, we seem to be seeing the same thing right now. And I guess this what happened last night kind of confirms this, because in the U.S. list, the China equity, uh, it fell 5% last night tomorrow. Um, so it just suggests to us it's been um, driven by some um, hedge fund related flow or speculative flow. But fundamentally, things have not changed yet. Uh, we're still waiting from the authorities to send confirmation signals that regulatory changes are coming closer to the end, but we haven't got that yet. We expect that in March. Uh, we're still expecting analysts to revise up their earnings but they are not doing that yet because they cannot see the outlook uh, through. And then we are waiting for our uh, stock market looks cheap. But if you look at the PE valuation, they are just above the 10-year average. They are not exactly cheap. They are okay. They are not expensive. And then we look at technical analysis. Uh, yes, this seems to us a tech that cap bounce too. So we are still hiding in renewable energy-related stocks. Uh, we're still waiting for those confirmations before we uh, add exposure to China equity markets. Okay, well, Nick, just final thoughts from you. What, what are your thoughts on the, how the market, particularly maybe the bond yields? We're seeing bond yields um, where they were shooting up at the beginning of the week, weren't they? Come down a little bit now in the last couple of days in response to the Fed. Right, yeah. Um, so I have to kind of admit this isn't fully my area of expertise, but I think what it does illustrate is that there still is a lot of concern around the outlook. Um, I think uh, when we talk about again, looking at the U.S. in terms of the interest rate hikes, there's growing chatter around whether this might involve some type of policy error, um, whether, you know, you know, the central banks might be acting in ways that actually could derail the coming economic recovery. And I think when we look at the holistic situation, there are a lot of factors there that do pose a lot of risks. So overnight, for example, we saw that, you know, the Supreme Court in the U.S. blocked Joe Biden's mm -hmm. vaccine mandate. Um, that's incredibly worrisome in the sense that the pandemic is still very much the number very one concern for, for a lot of this recovery. Um, and so until we start to see, um, you know, more stability there, that's going to have a cascading effect on the rest of the economy. Um, and, you know, if we see, start to see policy or parts of the economy normalize when other parts of the economy are still lagging uh, behind where they were before the pandemic started, you know, that disconnect is going to have some pretty severe uh, ramifications. Thank you both very much. That was Nick Marrow, lead for global trade at the Economist Intelligence Unit, and Jack Su, chief investment officer for Greater China at Credit Suisse. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's go over to Mumbai, India and say Happy New Year to Toby Lawson, CEO at Societe General India. Welcome back, Toby. Well, thank you, Peter, and Happy New Year to you. Thank you very much. Well, it looks like maybe um, India's economy uh, was a bit of a bright spot in the World Bank's uh, report earlier this week. They're expecting it to grow the fastest of all the major economies in the world, 8.7% uh, this year. Are you seeing signs there of a, of a pickup in uh, economic activity? Yeah, I think it's pretty clear that uh, uh, post a very difficult 2020 where you saw a 7% plus decline in economic activity, uh, the rebound is fairly strong in 2021 and continues to accelerate. Um, obviously impacted somewhat in the very short term by this uh, third wave of the pandemic, but uh, we're expecting a, a minimal impact in terms of overall GDP on this third wave at this point in time. But yes, uh, the target's around 9% uh, plus on the, on the fiscal year 22, 
probably you know seven seven and a half percent in following years. So overall, all indicators in, uh, are suggestive of a broad-based and solid recovery in India. And um, is are the authorities getting COVID nineteen under control there? Look, the cases are going to be pretty pretty high, as you would see in other uh, countries. It moves very quickly. This strain of the of the COVID. Um, 250,000 cases in India, um, it's a big number, but uh, as we've seen around the world, the hospitalisation and mortality rates are low. And uh, the Prime Minister uh, had a meeting with the central ministers yesterday, and um, or the chief ministers, should I say, and essentially they'll be looking at localised type restrictions where necessary, but nothing uh, like the lockdowns we saw previously. And we were talking earlier in the show about inflation. Clearly it's a big problem uh, in the US and in other parts of the world as well. Is inflation a problem there in India as well, or is it more control under control there? It runs fairly hot at most of the time in India, um, and current levels uh, announced this week around 5.9%. Uh, the RBI has a 2 to 6% uh, threshold where it tries to throttle inflation, so we're right at the top end of that. Um, I suspect that, that that'll stay um, fairly elevated uh, in line with what's happening around the rest of the world, but if it gets much over 6%, we expect the RBI to probably react, but at this stage, you would expect the Reserve Bank of India to focus on growth uh, and let inflation run a little bit to what's happened around the world, although now you're, of course, seeing the Fed starting to wind that back. And do you think that's now going to be the Fed's main focus? They seem to have switched, don't they, from supporting the economy through the pandemic uh, to now fighting inflation? Yeah, I think Powell's comments were pretty clear that the economy's in strong enough uh, health to be able to absorb higher interest rates. Higher interest rates in the very short term can actually um, have a positive impact on economic growth because it leads to... Uh, I guess, accelerated decision-making at the investment level um, as people react to that. Uh, and then, of course, it starts to tighten in on economic activity. So really it comes down to how much, how quickly the Fed need to move to, to curb inflation. But uh, at this stage, you're looking at three to four rate hikes max this year. Um, that's coming off a very low price. And the question remains how, how big the cycle moves up in overall interest rates will be, and that will determine how asset classes perform this year. And we're going to see QE shrink uh, this month by another $20 billion to $40 billion, and then another $20 billion off of that in February, and it's going to end completely by March. And the way Fed officials are talking, um, it looks like the Fed may well hike rates in, uh, in March as soon as that's over. Uh, do you think the markets are prepared for that? I think to an extent what we're seeing in uh, the beginning of the year is a fair bit of volatility uh, and uh, a little bit of rotation within the equity markets. And the equity markets will be the ones that probably react most uh, lead to a higher interest rate profile. Uh, but we've seen the growth stocks, particularly the tech sector, impacted. And that's probably a reflection of, of investors' concerns about how, how much more uh, the Fed may move. Uh, and so you're seeing that rotation and that's how the market's reacting. Overall, if you look at the bond market, it had moved fairly aggressively at the beginning of the year and is now sort of settling in around 175 on the 10-year. Um, it'll track a bit higher, we think, but it really depends on how quickly that moves to determine how that feeds through to equity prices as the sentiment. This is going to be an interesting period, isn't it? Because almost continuously since the global financial crisis, what, more than a decade ago now, we've had really easy monetary policy. This is probably the first time where the Fed and maybe other central banks are starting to make it clear uh, that that isn't going to continue, although even now uh, monetary policy is still pretty loose. But it, it's something that maybe investors have now got to get their heads around, isn't it? Yeah, 
Yeah, I think uh, you're absolutely right. I think yeah, we saw the taper tantrum back in 13 as an indication of Fed being very sensitive now to the impact on markets and on sentiment for, for the direction they take it. So I suspect they're going to try to run the clock as hard as they can to keep uh, investors from reacting too sharply to a higher interest rate environment, which is inevitable because of inflation and because of growth. So uh, it'll take time. I think it's the capacity of central banks to throttle this move will be the key and how investors react. So it'll be a very challenging transition period, to doubt. Toby, thank you very much. Have a great weekend. That's Toby Lawson, the CEO of Society General India. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Final look at the markets for this week. In Australia, the ASX 200 is off three quarters of a percent. The Nikkei 225 in Japan is down about one and a quarter percent. The Cosby in South Korea is off uh, three quarters of a percent. Futures markets indicating a decline of about 200 points in the Hang Seng at the open this morning. Thank you very much for listening this week. Have a great weekend. Do please join me again on a Monday morning. Uh, stay tuned for back chats coming up after the news with Janice Wong and Andrew Work. The weather forecast for today, mainly cloudy, cool in the mornings, uh, sunny intervals during the day, a maximum temperature of around 19 degrees. And then the outlook is for sunny periods over the weekend and temperatures rising slightly. Temperature right now is 16 degrees, 73% relative humidity. 8.31 and a half, here's Andrew Shorsky with the Half Hour News. Officials will take stock of the fifth wave of coronavirus infections today as they review a range of social distancing measures introduced a week ago. The SAR confirmed 14 COVID cases yesterday, five of them locally transmitted. The review is expected to consider whether a ban on evening dine-in services at restaurants and the closure of venues such as bars, gyms and cinemas should continue beyond the initial 14 days. The Center for Health Protection's Dr. Chuang Shukwan was asked yesterday about the progress of the outbreak. It is still a bit early to say whether the outbreak has been contained with the discovery of the recent uh, even link cases because they are not uh, from the quarantine center. They are detected in the community. So they have spent some time in the community and that would also cause some transmission. The government will also announce details of a new round of anti-epidemic funding today. Earlier this morning, the authorities lifted the first of two lockdowns at buildings in Tunmun that were ordered after a nurse and a nursing student who works in clinic, clinics in the town tested preliminary positive for COVID. Officials tested 380 residents at J.C. Place with no cases found. An operation at Hoytech Gardens is continuing. Officials say the student probably con- contracted the virus while visiting a patient with a doctor. However, she did, she did not work directly with the other nurse. And Dr. Chuang says they're still working out how the virus spread. One of the nurse is a part-time nurse who accompanied the doctor to see the one of the cases confirmed earlier on the 3rd of January. So we consider that incident may be the likely source of infection for that nurse. As for how come the second nurse get infected, uh, it is possible that there were some silent transmission in the clinic setting among the staff of that clinics. So both nurses worked in more than one clinic. That's why we have to check uh, when the other staff had contact with them during that period of time. 
In London, Buckingham Palace has announced that Queen Elizabeth's second son, Prince Andrew, is to lose his royal patronages and military titles. It comes as he faces a civil case in the United States over claims he sexually assaulted a woman when she was 17, an allegation he has consistently denied. Rupert Wheelock, a retired British Army colonel, said the service personnel would welcome the decision. And I think it is very awkward and uncomfortable for serving soldiers to have to uh, pay uh, toasts and tributes to anyone who is in an honorary position uh, who doesn't match the standards, the high standards that are expected of our armed forces uh, in the 21st century. And clearly, uh, Prince Andrew is, is in that situation. And that's the news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat with Janice Wong.